Open up to Numbers chapter 14, actually 13. It's a bad sign when I don't know what passage I'm preaching out of. Numbers 13, we'll get to 14 in a bit. Numbers chapter 13, it was very interesting to read Psalm 105, thinking about the history of God saving his people out of Egypt. That is the history that you're going to see in these chapters they're going to forget. They're going to neglect. And as I thought about this idea of fear and faith and how we respond to situations, I'm struck that that different people can look at the same situation and respond in drastically different ways. And I thought about an example of this. I, I've shared with this with you before. I'm kind of a space nerd. I like space, anything to do with astronauts, rockets. I love it. And, and in the movie Apollo 13, there's this potential looming disaster of losing the spacecraft and the astronauts in it. There was a disaster on Apollo 13, and they're not sure if they can get them home. And there's one scene where this guy, he's, he's talking with some other people, I think he's like the PR guy, and he makes this comment, this could be the worst disaster NASA has ever faced. And the flight director overhears it, and he says something to the effect of, with all due respect, I believe this will be our finest moment. I love that scene. Because two guys, one guy's looking at failure, and he's working for and preparing for failure. The other guy is looking at and saying, I see potential success. And I'm going to work toward that. Now, what makes the difference? I'm not sure what it was for those guys. I don't even know if that really happened or if it was just in the movie. But I do know what makes the difference for us. We have to decide how we're going to look at our situations, especially our difficult situations. Are we going to look through a lens of fear or are we going to look through a lens of faith? This is, and I want to be very clear here, this is way more than just positive thinking. Christianity is not just positive thinking. We don't just look at a situation and go, oh, it's fine. Everything's fine. We can deal with things and say, this is difficult. I'm going through a difficult situation. The nation could be going through a difficult situation. It's the lens through which we interpret those things that I want to focus on today. We're walking through the book of Numbers, and the book of Numbers is a book of walking through the desert. God has rescued his people out of Egypt. He delivered them miraculously. He saved them. He's established a relationship with them. And the book of Numbers picks up when they leave Mount Sinai after getting the Old Testament law, and they begin to walk through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. What should have been anywhere from three days to maybe two weeks, that's about how long it should have taken them to get to the promised land. And yet the book of Numbers will record a history of about 40 years of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. And today we're going to see why. What is it that went wrong? What happened and how did they respond to a situation out of fear rather than out of faith? We discussed 
Over the past two weeks, I think it was about two weeks ago, we talked about when they packed up and they began to move and everything was great and they were super obedient to the Lord and God's blessing them and it looks like this is going to be a great journey and everything's going to be wonderful because they're so obedient to the Lord and then you get to Numbers chapter 11 and right away they begin complaining. And we looked at how people complained and grumbled through Numbers rather chapters 11 and 12. And now, at the end of chapter 12, they've gotten to this place that's here identified as the desert of Paran. Later on, it'll be called uh, Kadesh or Kadesh Barnea. And basically, it's an area just to the south of the land of Israel. So they've moved from Egypt. We'll see from your perspective. They've moved from Egypt, and they're going up to the promised land through the wilderness. And they've come just south of where they need to enter the promised land. And there, they decide to send in a group of spies. Now, they're on the doorstep of fulfilling or seeing God's promises fulfilled to them. And they're going to send these spies in to check out the land, and they're going to come back and report on whether or not it's a good land or not, whether or not God's been faithful in his promises. So they choose 12 spies. Maybe you know this from growing up in Sunday school, very popular story. 12 spies go into the land for 40 days, really thorough. 40 days, they explore the whole land. And they come back to the people waiting there. And I just... I envision these people waiting there, and they're so anxious. We've been prepared for this. Now we get to go in, and we get to hear how good this land is. And sure enough, in Numbers chapter 13, verse 27, they come back, and the spies say, it's great. The land is great. They use the phrase flowing with milk and honey. I was sharing with somebody earlier. I I can't hear that phrase without thinking of Larry the Cucumber saying, sounds sticky, but... Veggie Tales has ruined a lot of Bible stories for me. Or enriched them, depending on how you look at it. But milk and honey was a way of just talking about the land being very fertile, very lush. Things grew, livestock grew and produced. It was a great land. It is what God has promised to them. But then we see chapter 13, verse 28. Because the spies also say, but the people who live there are very powerful. Their cities are fortified and very large. In fact, they use some terms there to describe what in their culture would have been basically descendants of giants. They're saying these people are huge. Their cities are massive and fortified. So we have a fair report. Here's here's the situation they're going to respond to. The land is good, but entering into it and taking it as God has promised is going to be hard. Dangerous, not comfortable, not easy. In chapter 13, verse 30, one of the 12 spies, a man named Caleb, gets up and he gives an interesting perspective. He says, we should go up and take possession of the land. For we can certainly do it. And I like how it starts. He silenced the people. I imagine like this word gets out, great land, But man, it's going to be hard. And suddenly the murmuring breaks out among the people. Oh, can you believe it? This is going to be so hard. And you can hear the volume just kind of growing as the people digest this very difficult news. And Caleb gets up and he says, wait a minute. Listen, we can do this. But then the other, at least most of the other spies 
also respond in verse 31. We cannot attack those people. They are stronger than we are. So here we have the heart of the situation that they're facing. And what I want to look at through this passage is how they respond to the situation. God has promised to bring them to a good land. They've checked it out and come back and said, yes, the land is good. God was true and just, and he has upheld his promise. But 10 of the spies come back and say, as good as it is, there's no way we're going to succeed in taking this land. In fact, they say, we're all going to die. This is the response of fear. Caleb's looking at the same situation that they are. They're looking at the same situation that Caleb is. Caleb is saying, we got this. We'll look at why he says that in a moment. But the other spies are looking at it and saying, there's no way. There's no way. We're all going to die. Fear and faith change how we look at situations. And we need to be aware of how they change how we look at situations because they become this lens through which we are interpreting things. I found some quotes by Corey Tenboom that I thought were really interesting. She wrote, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. That's very profound because worry says, I see this future that I believe is going to happen. The spies are looking at it and saying, in the future, we're going to try to conquer this land and we're all going to be wiped out. So they're seeing into the future, what they thought is the future, and then they're making a decision now, which robbed them of their strength. She also wrote, worry is a cycle of inefficient thoughts whirling around a center of fear. And I, th- I, I think she's capturing something there that I see in this passage the center of fear, at the root of who they are and how they're looking at the situation, there is this foundation or this focal point of fear rather than faith. And worry is the cycle of inefficiency that comes out of it. They are spinning their wheels there in the desert because they are afraid. It seems like both Caleb and the other spies are looking at the same thing. And it seems like they're both thinking what we can or cannot do. Caleb says, hey, we got this. The other spies are like, no way. But I really believe what's going on, and it's played out in the rest of the passage, is that the 10 spies, and we'll look at the rest of the people as well, they're looking at it and saying, we can't do this. And ultimately what they're saying is, God can't do this. Caleb is looking at it and he's saying, God can do this. So at the center of their response is what they believe to be true about God. That's at the heart of whether or not they're responding in fear or faithfulness. We see this in verse 32. It says that these other spies, these 10 spies, spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there of, are of great size. This statement is very interesting. And, and I think with the language, it's easy to skip over it. But they are actually saying, remember, they came back and said, oh, it's great land flowing with milk and honey, right? Now they're saying something different. That phrase, the land we explored, devours those living in it. They are literally saying it's a bad land. 
They're not just saying it's bad because these people live there. They are changing their story and saying the land is not good at all. They are directly contradicting what they have said and what God has promised. And they are directly denying God's faithfulness. They've removed God from the center of how they're looking at this. And now they're looking through this this lens of fear at the situation and judging God. God is wrong. This is such a fear-filled attitude. And look at how it spreads in chapter uh, 14, rather, verses 1 through 4. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole community said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land, only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is a turning point in the book of Numbers. This passage, this chapter, is the major turning point in the book of Numbers. Understand what they're doing. It's not just an act of disobedience. It is a rejection of God and all of his promises. God promised them this land. God promised them that the land would be good. He has delivered them from Egypt. They saw it with their own eyes. If you remember back to chapter 1 of Numbers, the reason Numbers is called Numbers, there was a census. They counted all the people. And the point I made in that sermon was these are the people that witnessed the power of God over the Egyptians. They know in their minds, our God is powerful. Egypt was the number one world superpower, at least in that area at that time. And God took them down like it was nothing. Yet here they are, ready to step over the threshold into the promised land. And they decide God is wrong. Our God is weak and he cannot do this. They reject God, they reject the goodness of his promises, and they reject the leaders that God had chosen to fulfill these promises. If you scan down to chapter 14, verse 10, they are ready to kill Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua. They're ready to stone them, which is interesting because in the Old Testament, stoning was the punishment for for speaking out against the Lord. So there's a profound irony here that they want to stone those that are speaking up for the Lord when it's actually them that should be stoned. Fear drastically changes our perspective. It removes God from the center. It removes God from the focal point of what we are trusting in and how we're interpreting everything else. And it sees everything instead through this lens of fear and doubt. Doubt about who God is whether he even exists, doubt about his goodness, doubt about his power. And fear, like cancer, spreads. It's interesting, the wording in this passage, that night all the members of the community raised their voices, all the Israelites grumbled, the whole assembly. Do you see this language? These ten guys, remember, this is probably a group of people, around two million people, possibly, And these 10 guys spreading these lies have influenced the whole community. 
And now they want to murder their leaders, reject their God, and go back to being slaves. That's how drastic a fear-filled response can be. But there's also an example in this passage of responding in faith. And I want us to use this as an example of what it means to have a faith-filled perspective, how we can respond to things through the correct lens of faith. We looked at Caleb's response in verse 30 of chapter 13. He said, we should go. Come on, guys, we can do this. And what we see throughout the rest of the passage is that Caleb's not saying, we've got this. Caleb is saying, God's got this. He's trusting in the Lord and applying that to his situation. Look at the key response of faith in chapter 14, starting in verse 5. I'll read 5 through 9. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes, and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Do you, do you see the difference in the perspective? They're looking at the same land, same people, same fortified cities. This is not rose-colored glasses of, oh, it's actually great. This is fine. This will be easy. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is we know who God is. We know what God has done. We know what God has promised, and so we will trust God to do what only God can do. And it's interesting how they first respond. And this is where we get into some cultural things. Sometimes we struggle with these things. But they they fall face down and they tear their clothes. These are signs of sorrow, repentance, and ultimately humility. Not toward the people. These leaders, these spiritual leaders, the community leaders, they're doing this, responding to God. God, we understand that we as a people are screwing up. We are rejecting you. And so they're responding in humility. And then look at what they say. The difference that's going to be made here is if the Lord is pleased with us. Well, he's already promised that he is. They said the difference will be that he will lead us into the land. The Lord is with us. Their focus is on God. And they're interpreting the situation through the lens of who God is. The other people, their focus is on the situation and they're interpreting God through the fearfulness of the situation. That's a drastic difference. But there's one more response that we need to look at. In order to truly understand how to respond to difficulty in faith, We need to understand what's at the heart of the issue here. And that is that faith focuses on the ultimate purpose of the glory of God. Moses and the other leaders here understand something about the Lord. Here the people are talking about stoning their God-given leaders. And then in chapter 14, verse 10, we read, Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. You know, when I was bad as a kid, it happened occasionally, hypothetically. Um, My my mom would make the comment, wait till your dad gets home. 
Anybody else ever hear that? It was like, you know, oh boy. In Numbers chapter 14, dad gets home. The glory of the Lord, the visible sign of the presence of the Lord shows up. Here they are all complaining, saying we're rejecting God, we're rejecting his leaders, we're rejecting his promises, we want to go back before God ever did anything, let's just start this all over, and then God shows up. The glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting. And look at what he says in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? I love this because God's not even talking to the people, he's just talking to Moses and the people are hearing it. Moses, what's going on here? How much longer, Moses, do you think I should put up with this? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? Let the weight of that phrase sink in for a second. We talk often about the faithfulness of God. We, we, we go through Bible stories of God's past faithfulness, and it's easy for these things to be very theoretical. These people that are standing there who have just rejected the Lord and are hearing great God Almighty say these words about them, they were slaves in Egypt in an impossible situation. And they saw miracle after miracle after miracle of God and his power systematically disarming the power of Egypt and all of the religious powers of Egypt. God brought it down and crushed it. They saw it with their own eyes. These people walked through the wilderness. They saw the Red Sea part in front of them, and they walked through on dry ground. They saw it. They lived it. That's what God is saying. How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have performed among them? God's saying, what else? What else do I have to do? I've said this numerous times before, but I think it's so important because it's so easy to live with this attitude of, God, if you would just prove yourself to me, then I would believe in you. God, if you would just prove yourself to our country, to our world, to my friends, if you would just prove yourself, then they'll believe in you. And that's not true. That's how deceptive sin and fear is. It can look at the proof and completely and totally reject it. And that's what the people are doing here. And God gets right to the heart of that matter. They're not just failing to be obedient, they are rejecting him. And look at what Moses does. Moses is going to step into this situation and intercede on behalf of these people that are rejecting God. That's a tough place to put yourself in between God and his anger for his people. And Moses is like, God, wait a minute. Listen for a second. Look at verses 13 through 19. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. Because God has said, I'm going to strike them down. I'm done with them. And Moses said, wait a minute, Lord. The Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people. And that you, Lord, have been seen face to face. That your cloud stays over them. That you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able 
to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Moses is even interpreting what God is doing through what Moses knows to be true about God. That's amazing. Think of the guts that that took. Moses is focusing on God's glory. Glory is the displaying of all that God is. That's the easiest explanation I can give of it. I actually was tempted to step out of the series next week and preach a whole sermon on that, but I'm going to refrain. But Moses understands that the highest priority for God is the display of God's glory. God being God. And everybody seeing God being who he is. And if God is not faithful to his promise, then it shows that God is not powerful. It will confirm what the Israelites are saying about God. Now, let's be very careful here. Is God going, hmm, Moses, you have a good point. I may have seen this incorrectly. I'm going to change my mind. I don't think that's what's going on here. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10 says, God says this, I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come, I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. The Bible is very clear that God knows the end from the beginning. He knows all the details, everything that happens in between, all of history, the Lord knows. So think about this. God knows Moses is going to stand up for the Israelites. God knows he's going to respond to that and say, okay, I'm going to forgive them. In fact, that's what he says in verse 14. He says, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you have asked. This is not God changing his mind. This is God doing what he was going to do anyway and using it to teach us something about who he is and especially to teach Moses something about who he is. But there are consequences here. God is not going to reject his people. He will fulfill his promise to them. But this whole generation, all of the people that were counted in Numbers chapter 1, are going to die in the wilderness. They will not be allowed to go into the promised land. It will be their descendants. The ones that they were afraid would be taken captive and enslaved and they wanted to protect them, so they wanted to go back to Egypt. Those people, God says, I will be faithful to them. And that's exactly what the book of Numbers shows us. For 40 years, they continue to wander in the wilderness until that entire generation passed away. And then, and only then, does God bring his people into the promised land. God's promises never change. Never. He is always faithful to his promises. Our experience of God's promise can change drastically based on how we respond, whether it be by fear or by faith. God has Moses tell the Israelites what he's decided. Tells them, turn around. 
You're going to head in the other direction. I'm not taking you into the promised land. And what's amazing is that here he says, I'll be faithful, but you're not going now. You're all going to die in the wilderness. And they realize we've made a big mistake. And now they want to be faithful, right? Now they want to see God's glory in this situation through faith. So what do they do? Remember, God has told them now, turn around and go back. And they say, God, we got this. And they go up and they try to take a city. And they fail miserably. Sometimes fear can masquerade as obedience. Sometimes fear can masquerade as obedience. We have to ask ourselves if we're truly trusting God in our obedience and saying, I'm obeying you, God, because I believe in who you are and I know you will do what is right. Or is our obedience, well, if I do this, then God has to do what I want. See, that's still fear. It's still us looking at the situation and using it to interpret God. It's not faithfulness. This chapter is a huge failure for the Israelites. Not for God. God's plan will still be carried out. The people will be brought to the promised land. And it's going to be great. It'll be hard. But the land is good. And it looks here like so much is lost. Throughout the rest of the book of Numbers, one of the hard things we're going to have to deal with is over and over and over again, large groups of people are going to be struck dead. It's not the sort of thing you expect to hear in church. But what I want you to remember is this passage. Those people made a choice. And God has said, until they pass away, The younger generation cannot go in. So until all of those people pass away, the Lord is waiting. The other thing that's really amazing, if we look ahead to Numbers 15, verse 1 and 2, this is right after this. They've just come back from this defeat. They've turned around. And it says in Numbers 15, 1 and 2, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, After you enter the land, I'm giving you as a home. And then he goes on to tell them about various laws and offerings. But that phrase, God has just disciplined them. He said, you're not going into the land right now. And right away, he makes it clear, but one day, one day you will. One day I will fulfill my promise because I am faithful. God is not done with them yet. And he is not done fulfilling his promises. We look at situations over and over again through this lens of fear or through a lens of faith. Fear sees God through the lens of the situation. Say the situation's tough. I'm not getting what I want. So-and-so is hurting me. The world is this way. And we look through that lens to God and we say, well, God must not exist or he must not be good or he must not be powerful. Faith says, I know who God is because he's told us. And so I'm going to look at the situation, whether it be politics, our relationships, our culture, the media, whatever it is, we're going to look at that through the lens of who God is. And we're going to interpret the situation through what we know to be true about God. God is good no matter what. 
God is powerful. He is faithful. Therefore, every situation, God's purpose is to use that situation for his glory and our good. That's the God that we have. He will fulfill his promises. We all live in our own wilderness today. I don't know what your situation is. I don't know the difficulties or the joys or the blessings necessarily you're going through right at this moment. For some of you, I do. But you know, and even more than you know, God knows. But I will tell you this. Day by day, moment by moment, you are faced with an option. How am I going to respond? Am I going to respond in fear? Or I'm going to respond through the lens of faith. It's so important to look back through all the ways that God has been faithful. And what a blessing we have today that as we look back, there is something magnificent that we get to see. Romans 9, actually all the book of Romans, picks up the Exodus and the Numbers experience and applies it to Jesus Christ. Here it says, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. When we look back to God's faithfulness, yes, we can see the Red Sea in him delivering his people. Yes, we can see Mount Sinai. Yes, we can see the other things in the Old Testament. But do you know what we get to see that they didn't see yet? God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place and to raise from the dead, promising eternal life to all who believe. There's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. There's the the proof of all of God's goodness and his power and his love for us. We get to see Christ. Christ is the one now that stands between us and God. Christ is the one now that when we're screwing up and we're living in sin or we're failing or stumbling and struggling, Christ stands up before his father. And he says, these are my people. I died for them. And God sees us through the lens of his son's death, burial, and resurrection. And we have a promise again. We're not there yet, but we're really close. We're right on the edge of the promised land. One day Christ is coming back. And we will live in the presence of God forever. And all of this world, with all the things that we complain about and we love to gossip about, all of it's going to be passed away and gone and recreated perfectly. And the glory of our Father will be there forever. But between now and then, we're in our own wilderness. And in the wilderness today, we need to ask ourselves, how am I responding? Am I going to respond through fear or am I going to respond through faith? Let's pray. Father, this is such a challenging passage. Because when we see the failure of your people in the Old Testament, we have to come to grips with the truth of the ways that we fail so often. And God, we we need to not gloss over that. We need to be challenged in that. We need to be redirected by you and by your word. But God, we also need to see the mercy and the hope 
You did not completely reject your people. Your promises still stand, and you did fulfill them to your people, even though they fought you kicking and screaming every step of the way. And Father, I can identify with that, because sometimes I'm that kicking and screaming child, thinking I know better than you do. And I thank you for your ongoing faithfulness to me, to the people gathered here. I thank you for your faithfulness through your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that you will be faithful in one day, bringing us home to being with you and recreating a new heavens and a new earth. That the old will pass away and the new will come. And Father, I pray that you help each one of us to see our present situations through that lens of faith in who you are and what you have done and what you've promised to do. May we not get sucked into fear. And Father, now as we move into communion and we celebrate and remember what your son has done for us on the cross, may we be people that never fail to remember that we are saved by Jesus Christ. May this truth sink deep down into us and be recited over and over again in our day-to-day lives and around our dinner tables and in our cars and in our discussions in the foyer around cups of coffee. God, to remind ourselves, remember what the Lord has done for you. And we praise you for your great goodness and glory toward us. In your name we pray. Amen.